Our text today comes from 1 Kings chapter 22 as we continue our study in the life and times of the prophet Elijah. Hear now God's holy word. Now three years passed without war between Syria and Israel. Then it came to pass in the third year that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went down to visit the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said to his servants, do you know that Ramoth in Gilead is ours, but we hesitate to take it out of the hand of the king of Syria? So he said to Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to fight at Ramoth Gilead? Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are. My people is your people. My horses as your horses. Also Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, please inquire for the word of Yahweh today. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, shall I go against Ramoth Gilead to fight or shall I refrain? So they said, go up for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. And Jehoshaphat said, is there not still a prophet of Yahweh here that we may inquire of him? So the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, there is still one man, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, by whom we, we may inquire of Yahweh, but I hate him because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks. Father in heaven, we thank you for these amazing gifts of your word and your spirit, and we pray that you would apply both gifts to us today as we read and study this account, that you would guide us by your spirit into true thoughts, deliver us from all error, deliver us from all distraction and anything that is unhelpful. We pray that your mercies would rest upon us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever asked someone for advice not because you were hoping that they would give you any real insight or direction or wisdom, but simply because you were hoping that they would affirm the direction that you were already heading. You were just looking for them to affirm the decision that you had already made. And there are times where we want someone to tell us what we want to hear, to confirm the plan that we've already cooked up so that we can have confidence going the direction that we've already made up our minds to go. We're like the emperor in that story who hired tailors to weave fine clothing for him, but the tailors pocketed the money. And then they tell him that they're weaving clothes of fabric so fine that you can't even see them. And everybody who looks at the loom says, oh wow, that really is some fine material, even though nothing exists. The emperor's friends are embarrassed to admit that they can't see anything. And the emperor himself won't admit that he can't see the clothes that everybody else is fawning over. So he puts on his new duds as he goes out to parade around the city and it, uh, nobody's telling him what's wrong. Nobody is confronting him on the reality of his situation until a child, to the shock of everyone, says the emperor is naked. He's out there in his birthday suit. We all need friends like that boy who will point out to us what is actually wrong and what is actually going on and isn't worried about our delusion or our self-deception, but we'll penetrate that with the truth. But it's always a temptation for us to prefer smooth self-affirmations. It's always a, a, a desire of ours to ignore helpful criticism, to have our own thoughts and our own desires reinforced for us rather than being held up to a standard, uh, uh, to be tried and tested. We develop an echo chamber for ourselves. We only seek to have our presuppositions confirmed rather than challenged. However, 
God's word does not confirm us in our errors. The Holy Spirit isn't happy to let us remain where we are, parading around in our birthday suits. His word changes our plans. His word confronts our plans, undoes them, and challenges them. And good friends and good counselors do the same thing. They're not afraid to challenge our position. We've been studying the life and times of the prophet Elijah to pick up lessons on how do you live in a time of widespread cultural idolatry. And we've spent a long time along this study getting to know wicked King Ahab. In today's text, we find that Ahab has surrounded himself with men who will tell him exactly what he wants to hear, even when the emperor has no clothes. And we'll see that this preponderance of bad counsel is evidence that God has turned Ahab over to judgment. Over the last couple of chapters, we've seen the unraveling of Ahab's kingdom. But it didn't have to be this way. God gave Ahab a fresh start and an opportunity for success at Mount Carmel. When Elijah confronted the prophets of Baal there, that was a reset moment for the kingdom of Israel. There, the covenant was renewed. There was an altar of 12 stones that represented both kingdoms. All the tribes of Israel were there. There was an animal and there was a wood for the fire and then there was water running down that miniature mountain to water the trough all the way around. We said when we studied that, it's like a mini Eden. It's like a miniature creation. And that, that old creation, that miniature creation was consumed by fire. It was liquidated. It was vaporized by the fire that came from heaven and it was all turned to smoke. And then after the sacrifice, it rains for the first time in three years. The land is washed. The, the land is baptized with water from above as God cleanses the land and washes the bodies of the prophets of Baal right out of the land. And so in that moment, God's authority and his power is revealed from heaven. The true God and king of all the earth is established. The false gods are embarrassed and shown to be false. And after this, after this moment, Israel is a new creation. Ahab is set up as a new king, a new Adam, with this new world to guide and direct. And his job is to protect, to dress and keep this new garden that he's been given. But what happens so often is that when we get a new start, when we get a fresh opportunity, we almost immediately spoil that opportunity. We don't respond to it with gratitude, uh, we take advantage of the great opportunity and immediately sin. So Adam is set up in a garden and he falls. After the flood, Ham sins with regard to his father Noah. Uh, Aaron uh, sets up a golden calf at Mount Sinai. Achan steals gold from Jericho. Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit after the day of Pentecost. Whenever we have renewal, rather than living in gratitude, we immediately fall. So immediately after the restoration of Israel at Mount Carmel, Ahab falls, not once, but three times. He spares the life of the invading king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, when he should have executed him. He goes out, though, and he kills his neighbor Naboth and takes his vineyard. He does it through a proxy. He does it through his wife, but Ahab is still responsible for this. So he kills his neighbor and takes his vineyard. And now in this chapter, the final chapter of Ahab's life, he ignores the prophet 
And he goes out and he kills, I'm, I'm sorry, he, he goes out and he acts like one of the pagan kings. He acts like a big warlord, like, like one of the pagan kings. And these three falls of Ahab parallel the great falls that we read about in the first chapters of the book of Genesis. If I, we talk about the fall of Adam and, and that's one great fall in Genesis, but the first chapters of Genesis detail three great falls of humanity. After Adam failed to protect the bride, after he failed to protect the garden from the serpent, then he's kicked from the garden sanctuary out into the land. And out there in the land, Cain strives with his brother and he fails in the land by killing his brother Abel. And then Cain is kicked out of the land into the world. And out there in the world, the sons of Seth the holy line of Seth intermarry with the daughters of Cain. It's a great compromise, and that ends in destruction. It ends in the flood, and then we get a new creation. That, that sets up a narrative pattern that gets repeated throughout the scriptures. So you have three zones where we're required to be faithful, in the garden, sanctuary, in the land, and in the world. We have three roles. We are to be faithful priests, we are to be faithful kings, and we are to be faithful prophets. And each zone, there are three typical temptations. In the garden, you run into serpents. In the land, you have to treat your brother with love and protect his life and his property. Um, in the world, you're tempted to compromise when you get out in the world. Now, we've gone through this before, and this is a, this is a recap, but your job in the sanctuary as a priest is to protect the bride and kill the serpent. Your job in the land is to love and serve your brother. Your duty in the world is to be a faithful prophet who does not compromise with the nations of unbelievers. And Abraham was faithful in each zone, in each test. Abraham uh, protected the bride against the serpent. Abimelech, he protected his wife against the serpent. He was a faithful brother to Lot. He didn't strive with Lot. He protected his life and his livelihood. He took care of his brother. And then uh, Abraham refused to compromise. He wouldn't become like the kings of Canaan. He didn't act like the kings. He wouldn't take their plunder, not even a thread or a sandal strap, lest they say that they made him rich. Abraham was successful in all the ways that previous generations had failed. And of course, Jesus also. Jesus battles the serpent, protects the bride. Jesus is faithful to love the brethren. He doesn't strive or contend with his brothers. He protects them. And then he doesn't compromise with the zealots or Herod or Pilate or Caiaphas, uh, but he, he opposes them. Jesus was faithful in the garden, in the land, and in the world. Jesus was the preeminent priest and king and prophet. But there are others who repeat the falls of the first chapters of Genesis. Most notably, King Saul. He fails to protect the garden against the serpent Goliath. Saul was ordained to be Israel's giant. He was a head taller than anybody else in Israel. There was a giant waiting on Israel's horizon, and Saul was the man who was to, supposed to go defeat him. But Saul fails. King Saul fails to dispatch the giant Goliath even though he was anointed for that purpose. Saul abuses the brethren like Cain. He mistreats David, his brother. He mistreats the army of the Lord. He tells them not to eat or drink before they go out to battle. He kills the priests at Nob. Saul abuses the brethren in the land. And then he compromises and acts like one of the kings of the world. He acts like one of the pagan kings consulting with a witch. Three falls for Saul and then a judgment. 
that's the pattern. Now all this gives us context. The reason I spend time on this is because it gives a context for what's been happening with Ahab. This is an outline of Ahab's life as well. After the covenant renewal of Mount Carmel, Ahab is set up for success like a new Adam, but he falls like Adam. He fails like Adam when he spares the life of the serpent. Ben-Hadad was the Syrian king who came and specifically attacked the women and the children. He says, your wives are mine, your children are mine. I'm taking the woman and I'm taking her offspring. He's a serpent and, and Ahab lets him go. So he fails like Adam. And then he fails like Cain. Ahab has his brother Naboth murdered. We even read that Ahab's countenance had fallen. He was sullen and displeased. He was acting just like Cain there, and he falls like Cain. And now what do we have left? We've got one more chapter left. It's the compromise chapter. And here, right on cue, Ahab is going to seek soothing words from false prophets, just as Saul sought soothing words from a witch. Ahab seeks false prophets instead of the word of God because he wants to go act like a big warlord and he wants to act like one of the pagan kings. Three falls and destruction, and that's what we see here. At the end of the last chapter, we got a short respite. We got a short delay because Saul had expressed some humility. And so God had said, the fall of your house, Ahab, is not gonna happen in your day. It's gonna happen in your son's day. You're, gonna, you're not gonna see the destruction of your house. Nevertheless, Ahab is going to die. We have a little bit of mercy, but now Ahab accelerates to his own destruction. So we're gonna read uh, this account, and just as we've been doing the last several weeks, we're just gonna read a few verses at a time and make, make some comments and applications along the way. So verse one, now three years passed without war between Syria and Israel. And then it came to pass in the third year that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went down to visit the king of Israel. We're reading about the divided kingdom era of Israel's history, remember? So we have a northern kingdom of 10 tribes and the southern kingdom of two. They've got two different thrones. They're two different nations. The southern king at this time is Jehoshaphat, who, by all accounts, when you read Kings and you read Chronicles, he's a faithful man, but he miscalculates in one area. He allows his son to marry the daughter of Ahab, Athaliah, will marry the son of Jehoshaphat. And she's a handful, just like her mama is a handful, just like Jezebel. Well, we read about her later. Uh, but he allows his son, he, he, he gives his son in marriage to uh, uh, Athaliah, the daughter of Jezebel. But now they're family. Now Ahab and Jehoshaphat are family. And so Jehoshaphat goes to visit Ahab. Verse three, and the king of Israel said to his servants, do you know that Ramoth in Gilead is ours, but we hesitate to take it out of the hand of the king of Syria. Think back to the arrangement that Ahab made with Ben-Hadad when he let him go. Do you remember the promises that Ben-Hadad made? He said, if you let me go, if you spare my life, I will give you back all the territories that we took from you, and you're gonna be able to set up shops in all of our cities. Well, funny thing, that never happened. Uh, Ben-Hadad did not give back all the territories. There's this territory, Ramoth-Gilead, that he didn't give back to Israel. And it's been three years, and Ben-Hadad didn't keep the promise, which proves how not only was Ahab disobedient in letting Ben-Hadad live, but this whole thing was politically foolish. He took the word of this Syrian king. The point of war is to settle things decisively. If it's worth going to war over, it's worth finishing the job. 
And if you don't settle matters, there's just more war. It's just perpetual war if you don't ever settle matters. It's the way that the United States, over the last 60 years or so, we get involved in these forever wars, these things that don't have any end or no, no clear objective or decisive uh, sense of victory. We just keep on going. And that's the kind of war that, that happens when you don't cut off the head. But you cut off the head of the serpent, and it's over. But Ahab didn't finish the job, even though Ben-Hadad was in his hand. God delivered him into his hand, and he could have ended it, but he didn't. And so now, three years later, it's still going on. Verse four, so Ahab said to Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to fight at Ramoth Gilead? Ahab wants to lead a joint offensive. He wants to get the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom back together. You know, just like old times. You get the band back together and let's go out to war. But as good of an idea as this sounds, this is not something that God has told Ahab to do. God hasn't sent word through one of his priests or one of his prophets. Ahab, please go take this battle to Syria. In fact, God's pleasure in the matter is an afterthought for Ahab. And this is exactly, remember back in the beginning of um, 1 Samuel, Samuel warned the people. The people were saying, we want a king like the nations. And Samuel said, if you ask for a king like the nations, that's exactly what you're going to get. And a king like the nations, you need to know this, is that he's going to conscript your sons into his army, and he's going to build a war machine, and he's going to dedicate your sons to his war making. That's what the kings of the nations do. And then they got King Saul, and he did exactly that. At one point, Saul was at war with all of the surrounding kingdoms at one time. And Saul was not someone who finished the matter. Remember, he spared King Agag of the Amalekites. Samuel had to come along and finish the job. But Saul was in this perpetual forever war mindset. And now Ahab has the same mindset. He's reflecting the same thing. He hasn't asked for God's will or for the direction of the Lord. And he says, yeah, Jehoshaphat, let's get our armies together. Wouldn't that be fun? And let's go to war and go get this territory back. Let's continue. Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are. My people is your people. My horses is your horses. Also, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, please inquire for the word of the Lord today. Inquire for the word of Yahweh today. Jehoshaphat says, I'm with you if we at least consider what the Lord has to say about this. Is is there a prophet here, Ahab, who can help us out, who can tell us what the Lord wants? Verse six, then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, shall I go against Ramoth Gilead to fight or shall I refrain? So they said, go up, for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. Now, who are these guys? 400 prophets. There were 400 prophets of Baal, but they're dead. These are not prophets of Baal. These are prophets who are going to claim to speak for Yahweh. These are Yahweh prophets, but they aren't faithful prophets. They're more like the prophets of that calf-worshiping cult that Jeroboam had set up. Remember, Jeroboam set up calves in uh, these sanctuaries, and he had, his own, he had his own priesthood, and he had his own prophets. Um, these are more like those prophets. They're on the payroll. They're, they're, um, they're, they're getting paid by the state church, and they're used to saying whatever Ahab wants to hear. And yet, notice that there's a little bit of ambiguity here, a little bit of ambiguity in their, in their response. They say, the Lord will deliver it to the hand of the king. Well, what is it, and what king is it going to be delivered to? So if Ahab comes back and he wins the battle, 
then it's Ramoth Gilead that will be delivered to King Ahab. But maybe if Ahab loses, they could come back and say, well, we told you that was gonna happen. Because when we said it, we were talking about the head of Ahab. And by the king, we were talking about the king of Syria. If you would have listened, you would have picked up on that. But they are uh, really vague. False prophets always leave some wiggle room. Fortune cookies and tarot cards and, and, and palm readers and diviners, they always speak in these spooky, mystical terms that could go either way. There's clarity in God's word. When he says to do a thing, it's clear what he wants us to do. When he says don't do a thing, that's very clear. But in these false prophets, there's all this ambiguity. So good King Jehoshaphat knows what's going on here. He hears that and he's not taken in by it. And he knows what's going on with these guys. And he's extremely uncomfortable committing his men and material and their lives. He's committing them to battle on such threadbare counsel, on such suspect counsel. Verse seven, and Jehoshaphat said, is there not still a prophet of Yahweh here that we may inquire of him? So the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, there is still one man, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, by whom we may inquire of Yahweh, but I hate him because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say such things. Ahab says, oh, sure. I mean, we've got one prophet of Yahweh around here, one legitimate prophet, but I hate him because he never tells me what I want to hear. He's always warning me of judgment and he's correcting me. He says, the Lord does says this and the Lord says, don't do that. I like nice prophets who tell me what I want to hear. I like nice prophets who support me in what I've already decided to do. And Jehoshaphat says, I can't believe that you would actually say such a thing, that you would actually admit that. Let not the king say such things. Is that what they call saying the quiet part out loud? I wanna, I wanna keep up with these sayings now. I wanna be sure that I know. It, it, did, did Ahab just say the quiet part out loud? That I, I hate the prophet who actually corrects me. Verse nine, then the king of Israel called an officer and said, bring Micaiah, the son of Imlah, quickly. The king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, having put on their robes, sat each on his throne at a threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets prophesied before them. I want you to get this in your, in your mind. There was, this was an elaborate, courtly, regal scene. You have two thrones, you have uh, Jehoshaphat and you have uh, Ahab in their royal robes. You have counselors assembled before them. It's at a threshing floor, um, which is a place of judgment. The threshing floor is where you separate the wheat from the chaff. In the gospel reading that John read this morning, Jesus is coming to his threshing floor to clean house. So this is a place where we determine the truth from a lie. And this is a very regal scene. Keep that image in your mind. Verse 11. Now Zedekiah, the son of Kenanah, had made horns of iron for himself. And he said, thus says Yahweh, with these you shall gore the Syrians until they're destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so saying, go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper for Yahweh will deliver it into the king's hand. Wow, there's a new strange specificity to this prophet's speech. There's not much ambiguity here. Zedekiah makes a little prophetic object lesson. He makes horns of iron and he starts thrusting them around and he says, look, 
I'm, 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 I'm gonna thrust the Syrians and gore the Syrians, and this is what we're gonna do. He's quoting Deuteronomy 33, which says that the sons of Joseph are like two horns, a pair of horns that will gore the peoples to the end of the earth. And so he says, Yahweh will deliver Ramoth Gilead into the king's hand. You will gore the Syrians. Something has changed here. There's a new confidence in the words of this prophet in encouraging Ahab to go to this fight. Zedekiah sounds real convincing here. Verse 13, then the messenger who had gone to call Micaiah spoke to him saying, now listen, the words of the prophets with one accord encourage the king. Please let your word be like the word of one of them and speak encouragement. And Micaiah said, as Yahweh lives, whatever Yahweh says to me, that I will speak. So the court attendant who goes to get Micaiah, goes to fetch him, he clues him in and said, wait, 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 before we go in there, I wanna tell you something. Everyone else is saying it's a good time to go to war against Syria. Everybody else is saying it's time to go get Ramoth Gilead. I just wanna let you know it would make all of our lives a lot easier if you would just say what everybody else is saying. It'd make your life a lot easier and it would make the king super happy if you would just go along with them. Get a clue. And Micaiah said, look, I'm not here to make anybody happy. I'm not here to confirm anybody's plans. I'm here to say what Yahweh says. So whatever Yahweh tells me to say, that's what I'm gonna say. Verse 15, then he came to the king and the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead or shall we refrain? And he answered him, go and prosper for Yahweh will deliver it into the hand of the king. So the king said to him, how many times shall I make you swear that you tell me nothing but the truth in the name of Yahweh? Micaiah says exactly what the other prophets said at the start. But there's something that the, about the way that Micaiah says this that clues Ahab into the fact that this is not genuinely good counsel. I would love to be there that day and to hear exactly how Micaiah said that because you can almost hear him say it and maybe a little sarcastically, go, go ahead, prosper. Yahweh's gonna deliver it into your hand just like you want. So either Micaiah hears this tone of, of uh, uses this tone of sarcasm and Ahab picks up on it, or at the very least, at the very least, Ahab knows that Micaiah is a legitimate prophet. He knows he's the real deal. He knows that these 400 guys that got around me are just yes men, and that a legitimate prophet is never going to tell me what I want to hear. A legitimate prophet is never going to encourage me or confirm my plans. So Micaiah explains why he said what he said. He says, the Lord has shown me two visions. The first one, verse 17. He said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And Yahweh said, these have no master. Let each return to his house in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? Micaiah says, here's what's really gonna happen. The sheep are gonna be scattered without a shepherd and everybody's gonna go home to his own house. That is not a vision of victory. That is a vision of defeat. That is, that is a division of a scattered army fleeing before the other army. But this is exactly what God wants to happen. Ahab hears this and he understands immediately that this is not at all hopeful for him. And he says to Jehoshaphat, I told you this is what he's gonna say. I told you when you brought him in here that he was gonna say something like this. I know this guy, he pulls this every time. He tells me what I don't wanna hear. But there's more, there's another vision. Verse 19, then Micaiah said, therefore hear the word of Yahweh. I saw Yahweh sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by on his right hand and on his left. And Yahweh said, who will persuade Ahab to go up that he may fall at Ramoth Gilead? 
So one spoke in this manner and another spoke in that manner. Then a spirit came forward and stood before Yahweh and said, I will persuade him. Yahweh said to him, in what way? So he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And Yahweh said, you shall persuade him and also prevail. Go out and do so. Therefore, look, Yahweh has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets of yours, and Yahweh has declared disaster against you. Now, I asked you to remember that royal assembly and that scene of Ahab and Jehoshaphat on their thrones. Now, in contrast to that regal assembly, robed kings, counselors coming and going, everyone singing Ahab's praises, Micaiah says, I've seen a higher court. I've seen the court of heaven where the true king of all the earth sits on his throne with his heavenly council arrayed before him, coming and going, angels singing his praises. This is a statement to both Ahab and Jehoshaphat that if you want your kingdom to last, if you want your throne to be secure, you have to be in harmony with that court. That court is the real court, and you need to image and model that court. In this scene, the Lord is sitting on his throne, and he calls out to all his heavenly host for any spiritual being, any angel, who will go convince Ahab to follow his heart and go to battle. And he gets a volunteer who says he will go put a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets, and God sends him. So that explains the shift in tone in the middle of the story. It explains the shift from this very ambiguous, yeah, go up, the Lord will deliver it to the hand of the king, to this very specific tone in the prophet Zedekiah, who says, yes, you will gore the Syrians, and you will fulfill the promises, and you'll do all this. There, there's something has been changed. A lying spirit has gone into the mouths of the prophets. So the fact that God would surround Ahab with lying prophets who encourage Ahab to make a disastrous move, this is evidence that the Lord is now finished with Ahab. He has turned Ahab over to judgment. Now, some folks have a hard time with the idea that God would allow or much worse, send an angel to put a destructive counsel in the mouths and minds of these false prophets. What kind of God would allow a spirit of deception to work like this? Hebrews 6.18 says, it's impossible for God to lie. How do we answer this? And how do we deal with it? How do we think about it? Well, we first remember that this is the very same God who hardened Pharaoh's heart because God wanted to show himself mighty against the Egyptians to defeat their gods, to ruin their society and deliver his people, to show himself mighty on behalf of his people. And so Pharaoh's heart was hardened. This is the God of Romans chapter one who gives up the lawless and the godly and the fool and turns them over to all manner of wickedness to follow their vile passions. God in Romans one, he gives them over to a debased mind. He allows them to believe lies. Now God didn't do any injustice to Pharaoh, no injustice. God gave Pharaoh more of what he wanted more autonomy, more rebellion, more pride. God does not do any injustice to the wicked when he removes all barriers between them and what they desire, what they give themselves to. There's a point with the rebellious man where God takes out all the stops and say, you want all of that? Well, go after it. Go have what it is you desire and destroy yourself with it. That's God's judgment. And that's what God is doing now with Ahab. 
God intends to lure Ahab into judgment and death. And he does it with Ahab by giving him exactly what Ahab wants. Ahab hates God's word. He hates his prophets. And so Ahab, you like lying prophets? You like counselors who will tell you what you wanna hear? You like people who tickle your ears? You want confirmation to go act like one of the kings of the nations? Well, here you go. Here's what you want. I'm giving you what you want. How is that unjust to give Ahab what he wants? We may still have a problem with the fact that God is directly responsible for the deception of Ahab. But notice this, that even while God is setting a trap for Ahab, he sends Micaiah to politely show him that it's a trap. He he points out the cheese and the lever, and he says, this is how the thing works. And he shows it to him, and Ahab still heads off into this foolish plan. He still eats the cheese after all of this. So taking all of this together, this story is not a problem for me. This doesn't This doesn't harm my theology or my view of God at all. This is the God who I worship. This is the God who I adore. This is the God who does this to his enemies. A key point when we're thinking about the character of the triune God, the mind of the triune God of creation, is that when he determines to bring down a king, when he determines to destroy a civilization or bring the wicked to nothing, he's not shooting nerf darts. He's not playing two-hand touch. He plays hardball with the wicked. And when he desires to destroy them, he doesn't stop halfway. He doesn't let things go on and on. He acts decisively. Exodus 15.3 says, Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh fights against his enemies and he fights to win. He uses military tactics to rope his enemies into their destruction. Armies use cunning and deception. And when it's necessary, God uses cunning and deception. Yahweh is the mastermind strategist in the way he's dealing with Ahab here. I mean, the cross itself, the cross was a trap for Satan. The cross was an opportunity to make Satan think that he'd won something. And yet through that, Uh, Jesus redeems us and the world is delivered from the reign of Satan through the the death of Jesus. And so uh, the Lord is playing, you're talking about 3D chess. He's playing like five-dimensional chess here with Ahab and and all the time. He's a mastermind strategist, obviously. Still, you might ask, so how can we trust a God like this? Well, it's pretty simple. Very simple, actually. Psalm 18 says that with the merciful, he shows himself merciful. With the blameless, he shows himself blameless. Uh, With the the pure, he shows himself pure. But with the devious, he shows himself shrewd. He is cunning with the wicked. So if you don't want the Lord treating you like an enemy, don't be an enemy. Don't act like his enemy and he won't treat you like an enemy. And if you want to act like his enemy, and if you want to ignore biblical instruction, you want to ignore the Bible's warnings, if you want to go your own way, then expect the Lord is going to treat you like an opponent. And know this, when you make that decision, that he always wins. He never takes the loss. He always wins. And one way that he wins is to give you what you want until it destroys you. Uh, It just takes off the stops and lets you have what you want until it eats you up, until it comes out your nose. And that's what he does with Ahab. 
So after Micaiah lays all this out, now the false prophet prophets who they've just been exposed. He just said we were listening and following a deceiving spirit. And so they're, they're pretty offended. And this theatrical Zedekiah, he gets physical with this. Verse 24, now Zedekiah, the son of Kenanah, went near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, which way did the spirit from Yahweh go from me to speak to you? Hey, I'm speaking for Yahweh here. When did the spirit leave me and go to you? He's trying to recover his authority. He's trying to get back control of the room. I'm speaking for Yahweh. He didn't leave me and go to you. And Micaiah says, you're gonna find out which way the spirit of God is going. Verse 25, Micaiah said, indeed, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide. In other words, your day is coming, big boy. I don't have to defend God. He's gonna take care of you. Verse 26, so the king of Israel said, take Micaiah, return him to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, thus says the king, put this fellow in prison and feed him with the bread of affliction and water of affliction until I come in peace. But Micaiah said, if you ever return in peace, Yahweh has not spoken by me. And he said, take heed, all your people. Well, however things turn out is gonna show, Micaiah says that'll determine who the true prophet is. Ahab decides to go forward with his plan in spite of all of this. He still goes forward with his plan, but he's gonna add a wrinkle. He's going to maybe elude God and his judgment by doing this. He's gonna ask Jehoshaphat to dress up in his kingly attire and his robes. And Jehoshaphat, you stay near the rear of the battle where the kings stay. But Ahab, I'm gonna go as a, as a common soldier and we'll see how this works out. This may sound real humble. It may sound like Ahab is being brave, but Ahab knows that the Syrians are gonna be aiming for the king. They're gonna be looking for the king. And if Yahweh is seeking Ahab's destruction, maybe I can evade death by being down here on the battlefield with the army. And if anybody dies, it'll be Jehoshaphat and it'll be okay. Verse 29, I'm just gonna finish this section and then uh, wrap it up with a few applications real quick. So verse 29, so the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you put on your robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariot saying, fight with no one small or great, but only with the king of Israel. So the king of Syria said to all his men, don't fight with the teenagers with spears. Don't worry about them. Go cut off the head. Go find the king and deal with him only. We want the head of the king of Israel. So it was when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, surely it is the king of Israel. Therefore they turned aside to fight against him and Jehoshaphat cried out. And it happened when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel that they turned back from pursuing him. That's not Ahab. We know what Ahab looks like. We know what he sounds like, but that's not him. So Ahab must be somewhere else. Now a certain man drew a bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the joints of his armor. So he said to the driver of his chariot, turn around and take me out of the battle for I am wounded. The battle increased that day and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians and died at evening. The blood ran out from the wound onto the floor of the chariot. Then as the sun was going down, a shout went throughout the army saying, every man to his city and every man to his own country. So the king died and was brought to Samaria and they buried the king in Samaria. Then someone washed the chariot at a pool in Samaria and the dogs licked up his blood while the harlots bathed according to the word of Yahweh, which he had spoken. 
Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did, the ivory house which he built and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Ahab rested with his fathers. Then Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. Well, Ahab's plan didn't work out. And the plans of, Yahweh's all, all, the plans of Yahweh always work out. The Syrians got close enough to know that Jehoshaphat was not who they were looking for. And in the heat of the battle, Ahab caught an arrow between the joints of his armor. As luck would have it, you know, as the, just a roll of the dice. Uh, sometimes the scriptures use words like random or just happened. And it's kind of written with a wink, you know, that it just, it just so happened. No, God set Ahab up with an appointment for his destruction, and there was no evading it. God's arrows never miss. I've said this a few times in the study, but nobody ever gets away with anything. God knew exactly how to draw Ahab out on that battlefield, and he knew where Ahab was in the middle of that melee, and God directed that arrow right to the very spot that it needed to go to bring down Ahab. God's purposes never fail, and we see his direction all over this. And as a result, we see that the prophecy of Micaiah comes to pass. The army of Israel was indeed scattered as sheep without a shepherd, and every man went to his own house, just as he said. And the prophecy of Elijah also came to pass. He said, dogs are gonna lick up your blood, just like they licked up Naboth's blood, and that happened as well. There's that humiliating note there at the end that, as Ahab's chariot was being cleaned out, it's cleaned out, it's being washed in the pool where harlots bathed. So even in his death, Ahab is keeping company with dogs and harlots. He's the king of compromise. He's the king of corruption, even in his death. Micaiah's word is true. Elijah's word is true. And so is the word of the unnamed prophet. There was an unnamed prophet back in chapter 20. He said, Ahab is gonna die because he let Ben-Hadad go. And that happens as well. It's a terrifying thing when God gives wicked people exactly what they want. I mentioned Pharaoh. I talked about Ahab. We looked at Romans 1. But you know, ultimately, this is what hell is. Hell is giving the wicked what they've lived for. They hate God. They don't want his blessing. They don't want his fellowship. They hate his son, Jesus. So why should they enjoy his blessing? They don't want it. Why should they have that for eternity? They hate the church. Why would they want to be joined with the church forever? They want isolation, they want to go their own way, they want to think their own thoughts, and that's what they get. Which is why, for you and I, our highest priority must not be getting what we want. Our highest priority is not feeling good or having all of our fleshly dispositions affirmed and confirmed. We don't go to God's word hoping for support for everything we're already thinking and feeling and doing. Rather, we humble ourselves and we open ourselves up for correction. If I am wrong, I want to know. I don't want my blind spots catered to like the emperor in the story. I don't want my unbiblical thinking and my unbiblical behavior reinforced by soft platitudes. I want to be corrected. I have changed my mind before. We have all changed our mind on theological positions and our lives are much better for it. We've come to a place where, oh yes, this makes sense now and this fits together and this is so glorious and wonderful. I'd like for that to happen again. If there's anything that I believe that is incorrect or anything we're doing or not, uh, we're not pleasing the Lord, our priority must be pleasing the Lord Jesus in all things. And if he loves something, I want to love it like he loves it. That's the thing I want to love, if he loves it. And if he despises something, I want to hate that with the same white hot passion that he hates it. I don't want what I want. I want what he wants. 
Don't give me what I want. That's judgment. Don't tell me what I want to hear. That's the way of destruction. Give me what Jesus wants. That's what's best for me. And that must be our perspective every day in everything. What does God say? Are we going to go this way or that way? It's not an afterthought. We're not going to think about what God says after we already made all of our plans. Do we go here or do that? Do we do this thing or do that thing? We ask what pleases God first. It's not an afterthought like it was for Ahab. Faithfulness to the Lord Jesus is the priority. Everything else falls under that. What Ahab wasn't, that we must be, is teachable. Ahab was not correctable. We must be correctable. Not seeking what we want to hear, not what we want to hear, but what we need to hear. To approach life with the possibility that I could be in error. I could be wrong. I could be thinking sinfully here, and if so, I need to be corrected because I am a sinner, and I am fallible, and I need correction. This is what Proverbs 13, 18 says. Poverty and shame will come to him who disdains correction, but he who regards a rebuke will be honored. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your spirit who convicts us, your word that corrects us for your church, that guides us. We pray that we would ever be humble and submissive. Do not allow us, restrain us from repeating the sins and the failures of Ahab, and guide our feet in the way of truth and obedience to you in all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.